Greetings, and welcome to the Random History Podcast. Today I will be discussing landmines as sort of a succession or continuation, or more of a spin-off of my previous podcast on naval mines, and then after this I will continue on with rockets as a way in which to kind of talk about incendiary devices that traditionally do not receive as much recognition or even cover, being as much as they're more popular varieties or contemporary and popular varieties such as lance such as cannons and mortars so if there's i'm going to focus on in addition to covering landmines i'm actually going to focus on pre-explosive landmines by which i mean things such as caltrops or kind of buried devices as not necessarily as like calling them landmines landmines but in, kind of in a way to like show that the concept or the driving ideas behind the landmine are something that's actually been used quite a lot through history. So, before explosives, the Roman Empire would actually be one of the first people to bury hazards in the grounds around many of their fortifications, including goads, which were basically pieces of wood that had that had hooks on their ends to kind of get stuck on people. Lilies, or... Yeah, sorry. It's been... It's, uh, I believe the... Roman or Latin wood would be lilia, but the English wood would be lilies, which were pits in which people had sharpened logs, and apodis, which were basically fallen trees in which the sharpened branches would face outwards. And oftentimes, in a very similar way to these were basically victim operated. That means basically that they would be triggered or they would be activated by the victims, and oftentimes they would conceal them. And the zone, and the zones, in the zones that like they would one would be wide enough that basically people could not attack them from the outside. People could not attack them with melee weapons, or just, but they were able to attack those specifically using bows or spears if they attempted to remove the obstacles. I know he is. We would spur Singatorix as a way to prevent him from receiving reinforcements. And later on, we'd see the Scots use the lilies, or aka the sharpened spikes and sharpened logs and pits, during the Battle of Bannockburn. And then later, the Germans would use them during the First World War. And a much more common anti personnel slash mine like device would be known as the Caltrop. This is a device that's between 12 and 15 centimeters across. That has four sharp, sharp spikes, sorry, that are basically oriented in a way that no matter how you throw it, one's always going to point up. And these are actually more similar to the modern anti-personnel mines than to the like modern killing or anti-tank mines as these are designed to disable soldiers rather than killing them. And they were actually better used for... They were effective... With land forces, by forcing them to take time to move and slowing them down, however, they were much more effective with mounted troops, as mounted troops were not able to, like, kind of look ahead of the land in front of them as much just because of the speed of the horses made it harder for them to kind of surveil the area or put as much effort into it. They were actually used during the Battle of Zongdu to show down the Genghis Khan's advance. Then Joan of Arc would actually be wounded by one later in during the Siege of Orleans, or during another time... And in Japan, they would actually be known as Tetsubishu, and they would be used 
by ninjas, interesting, interestingly enough. And even today, they are sometimes used as roadblocks in some modern conflicts, as they are really easy to make and can be made using very simple and very low-quality steel, but still be somewhat effective. And then we'd see our kind of the middle age of the mines in which we'd see gunpowder be invented by the Chinese. And later on, and like we would see them be used in battles in the forms of bombs. However, there was issues with using them in mines because gunpowder was a high... Sorry, can, I never can pronounce this right. I actually learned this today. The word for this. I knew like the concept before, but not the word. The term is hygroscopic, which basically means that they are very attracted or they are very good at attracting water molecules that make them, and they absorb a lot of water from the atmosphere. And this is bad because wet gunpowder is not explosive, so therefore it's much less useful for explosives. Then later on, we'd see in the a 14th century military treaty, which I mentioned earlier in my last podcast, interestingly enough, kind of a co- coinciding coincidence between them. The Hu Longjing, aka the Fire Dragon Manual. Interesting enough, I forgot I mentioned that in the last, in my last podcast, but that's the English translation. Honestly, it probably would have been better to mention it then, but I'm mentioning it now at least. And these would actually they would end up using what essentially were cast iron cannonball shells that were actually hollow. That way, they could be filled with gunpowder, and then they'd have a wooden mine that would have three separate fuses that were quite long. However. And would be lit by hand, so it did require heavy calculation. And later on, and this book would also describe actual land bombs, which were composed of a nine-foot length of bamboo, which was waterproof through both the cowhide and oil covering, which would be filled with both compressed gunpowder and pellets, and then would be... And the idea would hunt it. When the enemies would step on a hidden board, it would dislodge a pin. This would lead to a weight falling, which would basically attach. And this is very rude. Just gonna say this is very rude, Goldberg. Not gonna lie. Then the 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 weight would be wrapped to a cord that would then wrap around a drum attached to two steel wheels. This would lead to the wheels striking sparks against flint, igniting some fuses. That way, they'd ignite several mines. And as were, and because of this. And be, like because of this like, explosion, they would this would scatter around the balls and the pellets within it, creating kind of a scatter effect and doing some good amount of damage. Interesting thing enough is that some of the f- the first ever wheel mo- wheel lock musket as sketched by Leonardo da Vinci would actually use a similar mechanism. Interesting thing enough is that also. Another victim-operated device, which basically, once again, means something triggered by the victim, was something known as the Underground Sky-Storing Thunder, which, honestly, I'm assuming sounds better in Japanese. The idea is that people would be lured by basically these various, like, pointed weapons, so like halberd, maybe a lance, maybe a pike in the ground, and they would pull these out. The butt end would disturb a bull, and this bull would ignite fuses. However, these... Devices were very, very inefficient and very, very unreliable, and as a result of this, they were widely abandoned. And eventually, in 1573, at a in Augsburg, a German engineer by the name of Samuel Zimmermann would invent the Flattermine, a.k.a. the Flying Mine. This was made of a few pounds of black powder buried near a surface that was activated either by stepping on it, a.k.a. pressure, or a tripwire. 
and they ended up using these in front of a fort. They were not extremely effective. However, they were somewhat effective. And the interesting thing to note is that there was another device that was neither victim accurated, and it was also not very produced on scale. However, it was used somewhat. It was known as a Fogaus. This is also basically, it's also kind of is a improvised mortar of sorts. But not, it sometimes uses an improvised mortar. But basically, not, but it was also used as a mine sometimes. And this is widely considered to be a precursor to both modern fragment, fragmentation mines and the claymore. And this is basically a cone-shaped hole with the gunpowder at the bottom. And this is a cone as in a, the mouth of the hole is the circular part of the cone. While uh, the, it narrows as it heads down, and this would be packed full of gunpowder that would either be covered in rocks and scrap iron or mortar shells. And it would actually have two separate names. Stonefowlgeist for the rocks and scrap iron and Stonefowlgeist for the mortar shells. And this would be triggered to a flintlock attached to a tripwire. And this could cause a lot of casualties. However, it was high maintenance because of how susceptible black powder was to becoming damp. However, it would be used... And as a result of this, it would be used in various defenses of major fortifications. If they could devote more time and effort to maintaining these as opposed to combat forces who were constantly on the move. And a major limitation on early landmines in general is their susceptibility to becoming damp. And this would change, however, with the invention of the so-called safety fuse. And later on, we'd see the... And then we later on, using something known as command initiation which is the ability to detonate a charge immediately instead of having to wait after electricity. This led to explosives becoming much more useful as they could detonate them much easier and much quicker. And they didn't have to rely on the like the sometimes disastrous effect of waiting, which would often allow people to flee. Or in some cases, I don't know if this is actually true, but I could, often, could, definitely, I could definitely see this leading to people... Maybe you're pursuing someone and you accidentally step in front of your own mine as it detonates as you're not entirely sure of the locations or the time frame. In addition to this, later on as the percussion cap was developed as an alternative to a flintlock, victim-activated mines became much more popular as they were much more reliable. And later on, pressure-activated mines would come more into effect just because they were much more reliable once again. Then later on... The Confederates, during the American Civil War specifically, a brigadier, brigadier general known as Gabriel J. Gabriel J. Rains would deploy thousands of so-called torpedoes, which are basically just artillery shells with caps. Interesting to know is that he would actually use explosive booby traps during the Seminole Wars, and these would not have many casualties, however, but they would have a large effect on morale just because... Oh, out of nowhere, someone could die, which was very disastrous, and would definitely slow down advances. And both sides would, and that considering these barbaric, and the Union, interestingly enough, would use Confederate prisoners of war and to remove these mines, oftentimes dangerously, because it's a mine that you can't really defuse. You can defuse them, but they're not like modern mines. And even though that oftentimes could probably make, it could make them easier or harder to defuse, I don't know how hard it would be to do it, they were also quite just rudimentary, so therefore they're probably much less to diffuse. And a major advancement in the 19th century that would lead to more powerful mines would the development of more powerful explosive devices. And oftentimes, interestingly enough, is that these were not developed for military reasons. However, they would be developed for more 
infrastructural-related reasons such as blasting train tunnels in the mountains, both the Alps and the Rockies. Interesting, and a very big one known as cellulose nitrate flash paper or gun cotton, which was around four times more powerful than gunpowder, would be invented by Christian Schoenbein. It would be dangerous to make until a man known as Frederick Augustus Abel developed a safe method in 1865, which is kind of like how Alfred Nobel found a way to stabilize nitroglycerin, and this became much more standard explosive for a large period of time, and later on, nitroglycerin would be invented to treat a heart condition. At first, but then they realized its explosive uses, and once again, this would be very volatile, and as a result of it, it would... At first, be used. It would at first still be used for the heart thing, and it was. And it would often be used as in destruction and construct various like infrastructure related to even. They would even use it to build help build the tunnels through the mountains for railroads. And it would, but it would still be quite dangerous until Alfred Nobel would discover a way to incorporate it into dynamite, and would later find a way to safely detonate it. However. Even then, when stored, it could form crystals and had to be very stored care- stored very carefully. Sorry about that grammatical mishap right there. Otherwise, it could form these easily detonatable crystals. Then later on, and as a result of this, the military would end up kind of preferring gun cotton just because it may not be necessarily as powerful, but it's much easier to use. And sometimes, it's easy- better to have something that's easier to handle and less expensive to handle than something that's slightly better but much worse to deal with. Later on... The Germans would would end up developing trinitrotoluene. I can never pronounce this, aka TNT, which is a much more well known name. And this was quite useful because it was much more difficult to detonate, so it could withstand shock firing by artillery. And this was very good for landmines because, first of all, it wouldn't be detonated by shells landing nearby, which made it so your mines would not go off prematurely. It was lightweight, so much easier to transport around. It was unaffected by damp, so now it could be stored under, and it would be less susceptible to water, and it could be stable under various containers, and it could also be melted, and it was very cheap to use. That way, as a result of this, they could use them to make fill up little containers. That way, they could basically make smaller mines instead of having to chop it up or have issues sizing it down. It could be sized up or down at will, allowing for various scales of mines. And between the Civil War and the First World War, we'd see mines often used in various ways sporadically. The British would be very successful, or not necessarily successful, they'd be, they'd definitely use them a lot more, and unlike the Americans, they did not really worry about just morality or, like, if they were good to use or not, they kind of just used them. And we'd actually see them used during the Siege of Khartoum, in which the, a Sudan, they would manage to hold off a Sudanese modest force, which is a basically political movement which struggled against the Ottomans. They managed to hold them off for a significant period of time. However, later in, the town would fall, and then they would be inha- the British inhabitants would be massacred, leading to a large number of people killed. As they be as they were heavily outnumbered by a factor of I believe over five. And then later on, we'd see that during the Boer War, they'd actually be very useful at holding an important city, known as Maeve King. That also contained a, the several members of the nobility, or even like descendants or relatives of nobility. 
and keeping them from like, being overrun through both the use of fake and real minefields. And they would also use the mines, or they would place them around railroad tracks as a way to discourage people from sabotaging them. And then later on, in the Russo-Japanese War, we'd see them both use naval and landmines. The naval mines were much more successful, however, the landmines did have a somewhat of an effect on morale. Later on, then later on, we'd see them widely used in the First World War. However, they they were not like they would they would not be widely used like early in the war. They'd be seen more used later in. This is because anti-personnel mines, at least during this period, were not necessarily like viewed as a big game changer. Just because they already had machine gun guns, they already had rapid fire artillery and barbed wire, and these were always much more effective and in a stationary position even though mines and also because they were in a stationary position they could rely on these much more than they could in other areas so therefore mines were not as big as the game changers they would become later an exception to this rule however would be in africa specifically in the battles and conflicts within Tanzania and nambia just because these areas were much more mobile therefore mines could be much more useful as you don't need to, it's easier to set up a bunch of mines than it is to build up machine gun nests and artillery positions. So therefore, in these areas, it would be much more useful just to place down quick landmines as a way to improve your defenses. And later on, during the end of the war, we'd see the British use tanks to break through trench defenses. And as a result of this, the Germans would eventually use improvised anti-tank mines, which then later consist of wooden boxes filled with gun, to- gun cotton. Later on, between the First and Second World War, the Allies would not really work on landmines, however the Germans did, and the Germans would go to great efforts to develop anti-tank mines as kind of a way to, like, prevent their past failures. These would be known as the Teller Mines, a.k.a. the Plaint Mines. It would also devise the S-Mine, a.k.a. the Shrapnel Mine, the first bouncing mine. Then this would jump up to waist height when triggered, and then exploding, sending thousands of steel balls in all directions this could be triggered by pressure tripwires or electronics and could harm soldiers within 2800 square feet which is an absolutely massive amount of land and the thing to know is that during the second world war tens of millions of mines would be laid at a absolutely massive scale the thing to note they would be they would be much more popular in the deserts of North Africa and eastern the steppes of Eastern Europe, this is just because the open ground here was very conducive for tanks, and therefore, an easy way to guard against them would be to use mines. Now, interesting to note, however, is that the first country to actually use them would be fin- would be Finland. This was because the fin- the Finnish forces were facing a much larger. For this is for several reasons, they were facing a much larger force. However, the terrain would break up a lot of areas and was very mountainy and full of lakes and forests. So tanks were very inefficient at traveling on these and had to rely on tracks and tra- in like various roads. They ended up having their own defensive line, known as the Mannerheim Line, built by them across a specific isthmus. Specifically, the Karelian isthmus was kind of basically their defensive line. And they would actually combine the natural features with mines as a way to prevent them from people make it harder for them to attack. Thing to note, however, is that interesting is that sorry about the repetitiveness in that one right there, that was a little messy. But during Blitzkrieg, the Germans did not lay many mines that they would concentrated on advancing, however, after nineteen forty two when they were often forced on the defensive, they became massive mine users and would eventually be both the most inventive and the most systemic uses of uses of said mines. 
They'd end up producing large amounts of them, and they would invent new types of mines, as they would search for ways to counter existing ones, as the allies would find ways to counter existing ones. So, for example, as they realized that, as they realized that people would, or as they kind of found out how people were, and learned how people would try to remove the anti-tank mines, they would actually surround them with anti-personnel mines, and the shrapnel mines, that way people would be more afraid of hunting people, or more afraid of hunting for the mines, as it was more likely that they'd be killed in the process of reaching them, and they would add anti-handling devices that would lead to people basically leading to people, the scenario in which people, if they would handle the mine, the mine would detonate. Oftentimes, as they would handle them or lift them, basically oftentimes killing the soldier. Interesting thing to notice, however, that despite the massive amount of mine use they would use in these areas, they would actually keep quite formal records and quite large records of them. That way they could kind of understand or kind of keep track of them. That way they would not fall victim to their own minefields. And they would often they would actually use them quite effectively during the Battle of El Alamein, in which they would, even though they would lose the battle, they would cause massive casualties as they would lay about half a million mines in two different fields. That were covered by both small arms fire and by eight, 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 88 millimeter anti-tank guns. These were known as the Devil's Gardens. And these were these just absolutely destructive positions. And even though they did win the battle, they the Allies did win, they would lose over half their tanks. And the mines would cause around 20% of their total losses, which is an absolutely massive amount. And as I previously mentioned earlier, the Finns did use the mines against the Russians with quite a decent amount of success. And interesting enough, interesting or kind of a cool thing to know is that the Russians did, the Soviets did realize how effective these could be and they ended up manufacturing over 67 million. And during the Battle of Kursk alone, they'd lay around a million of them in about eight different belts as a way to help halt the German advance. And these were quite effective at, at halting advances as they would force these soldiers to slow down. And then the, tank, the tanks would have to slow down, that way the soldiers could go ahead, and the soldiers would have to hunt for mines. And later on in the war, people would develop mine detectors and metal detectors, and actually a Polish man known as Joseph Kosakai would devise the Polish mine detector, which is basically a metal detector that was easy to use for them. And in response to this, the Germans would actually make wooden and glass mines... Mainly wood mines, which were actually quite effective. They were also even easy and cheap to make. They would also use other things like glass, concrete, and clay. However, the wood was very popular for them just because it was very easy to get and not super hard to find. And they could harvest lots of it, and it was much cheaper to use than other things. The Russians would use a pressed cardboard one, and the Italians would actually make one out of plastic. Later on... The Germans would develop something known as the Topf Mine, and this is interesting enough that this was the first ever non entirely not this was not the first ever non metallic mine, but this was like the first or like the main non or the main modern non metallic mine, or something enough, and that they'd actually find a way for them to detect them as they would cover them with mildly radioactive sand. However, the Allies did not catch on to this until after the war, so any chance of them using this to develop countermeasures was sadly pointless or just un. Not possible. And various methods were tried but failed, including 
rollers and bulldozers and tanks. And the thing to note is also that they would use a certain type of mine, basically a tube full of explosives, in order to clear out barbed wire. And another one, but one way that people did find to use, or trying to find to use in class clear out mines, was the flare one, which they would attach a chain with the weights attached to rotating drums, and they actually end up attaching several versions of these to tanks also. During the Cold War, they'd use a lot of, they'd not necessarily use a lot of them in the actual land between the Russia and the Allied Nations. The, sorry, NATO, not Allied Nations. But they did design large numbers, and that during both the Korean and the Vietnamese, they would use large numbers of them. Also, many of the, however, and even when they were used in Korea, many of them were disabled and used against the Americans. Later on, the Americans would devise the Claymore Mine, and they would continue to develop more mines, and these would be used during other conflicts. That is all for today, folks. Thanks for listening. I will be back again tomorrow with more podcasts, or specifically two more. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a wonderful day.